You're listening to What's Wrong With This Picture? Freaky films and why we freaking love them. Hi, I'm Lindsay McCullough. And I'm Gary Mulholland. And in each episode of What's Wrong With This Picture, we'll be looking at a movie we think is weird and wonderful. We sometimes do include the endings where it's key to what the film is, so please be prepared for that. So anyway, buckle up and join us on a journey to dangerous cities, suburbia and other fantasy worlds. It's going to be a wild ride. On this episode, we're going to be discussing American Psycho. Uh, This is directed by Mary Harron and co-written by Mary Harron and Guinevere Turner. It's based on the 1991 novel by Brett Easton Ellis. It was released in the year 2000. And um, it's a satirical black comedy slash horror movie that stars Christian Bale as Patrick Bateman and uh, able support from Willem Dafoe, Jared Leto, Chloe Savini, Justin Theroux and Reese Witherspoon. Lindsay, what's American Psycho about? In Manhattan in 1987, Patrick Bateman is just like all the other bros on Wall Street, eating ridiculous nouvelle cuisine in pretentious restaurants, having pissing contests over the width and girth of their business cards, and trading luxury brand names back and forth like panini football stickers. But there's one big difference. Patrick likes to listen to adult-orientated rock and go ballistic with a hatchet, for he is an American psycho. Or is he? Gary, what's wrong with this picture? Um, Yes, so uh, what's weird with this picture? Okay, firstly, it's a magnificent film of a novel which its own author author declared was unfilmable, Um, yet it is absolutely Mm. captures... The novel, uh, not identically, but more than well enough. Um, it's a comedy which has some of the most brutal and sadistic killings in screen history in it. Um, it has a meaning and an ending which are completely ambiguous, and that's the intention of both the filmmaker uh, because the filmmaker was trying to capture the intention of the novelist. Um, and the novelist did not want it to be easy for anyone to work out what happens in the end. Um, and it has a performance um, at its lead, at its heart, which is where, where, where <laughs> it's, guy, it's hard to put this into words. He, because the easy thing to say is, oh, you know, he's a charming serial killer. It's kind of like, no, you know, Patrick Bateman is not charming. Patrick Bateman is hideous. Um, But Christian Bale is really funny. Yeah. And he absolutely is trying to be funny and he gets it absolutely right. Um, He, the reason mary harron cast him is because he was the one actor she spoke Mm -hmm. to that got the fact that it was a comedy novel yeah um and he he smashes it out the park absolutely i think i think that's the thing it is the blackest of black comedies it is it is so funny and i'm i'm sure some people might watch it and say what is there to laugh at but actually there is tons and tons to laugh at i mean the, the the warning that came up when uh i watched this i think i watched it on a one of the streaming streaming services it says you know certificate 18 nudity violence substance use alcohol use smoking <laughs> foul language and se- sexual content now it has all that <laughs> but that doesn't begin to describe some of the things that that you see you know that there, there no, is there no. is a lot of blood there are very memorable deaths and 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 yet it remains incredibly funny um Part of the funniness is in the dialogue, and I'm mm. sure we'll we'll talk about that kind mm. of later on. Partly, as you say, it's in Christian Bale's incredible performance, mm. and you say he's not he's not charming and he's quite repellent, and he is, and that's to me that's key to this film because it's all about conformity, and he's yeah. no more repellent than anyone yeah. else. Yeah, absolutely, and this no is more or this less is where <laughs> this is where the kind of the slight is it or isn't it kind of comes yes. in. He his views really are the same as everybody else's is he taking it to the nth degree and acting out on these views or is he not is this the the the, the kind of the the fiction of a of a deranged mind i think the other thing i really like about it is 
This is made in 2000, as you say, made only 13 years after 1987 when it's set. Mm. Um and it feels like a period piece. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, yeah. there's something about the 80s which is so alien to even 10 or 13 years later. Yeah, just, just that's that really kind interesting. Of, that kind of stereotypical 80s, which is what this film is mm. all about, kind of brand names and flaunting your wealth and flaunting your dick if you're on Wall Street, your metaphorical dick, um, and, and kind of women being decorative and kind of nothing else, sometimes not even that. Mm. Uh, it, it's just... Uh, I think it's incredibly clever that it's it's presented through this historical lens so soon after these events happened. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it taps into um, kind of, I think, I, I mean, I don't know, but I would have thought that, that Mary Harron looked at films like American Gigolo yeah. um, and, and for kind of fashion tips yeah. and hair tips and interior decorating tips. Yeah. Of course... Brett Easton Ellis has already got all that in the novel. Yeah. I mean, there is, you know, it is full. The novel is full of detail of things. Yeah. Because the point he is making is this was a moment in America where the rich were obsessed with nothing but things and were essentially dehumanizing themselves. And um, it, he, so it's not like it's not in the novel. However, there is a look about this film that that seems to take things like American Gigolo and Wall Street. Yeah. And and do them in a subtle way where it's funny. Yeah. Uh, and I, there's nothing comic blatantly on the screen, but you look at it and you're going, this is this is a, you know, you're, you're giving this a kicking. You're giving this moment a kicking. Yeah, absolutely. Even even some of the, the, the decor, again, it just looks so old-fashioned, certainly to mm. us now. Yeah. But, but it was meant to look old-fashioned. In, Even in 13 years later. So it's like immediately the 80s were over. They were already kind of part and packaged and put in a time capsule as something different, something that used to happen. Yeah, And I, I think I think the film captures that really well. Do you think, what, do you think there is a weirdness in... So we're talking, you know, obviously we're already mentioning the violence. Do you yeah. think the violence is weird? <clears throat> do I think the violence is weird? I... I think it's, I think some of it is actually, mm. um, you know, that somebody initially, I think the first murder that we see is somebody who gets attacked with an, an axe and mm. we don't actually see that much. We don't see the no. axe going in. We see a lot of the blood spatter, mm. which against the kind of white antiseptic looks of Patrick Bateman's apartment yeah. is, is, is the shocker. We see some violence. No, I think again, we hear some violence directed <laughs> against a homeless person and their dog. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm starting to wonder how much violence we I, actually see. I think see you've now. just pinpointed something that she's she does this incredible job and, and using Christian Bale's face and reactions as a conduit of making you believe that you have seen something yeah. absolutely hideous, and then when you watch it back, it's like no, that wasn't on screen. Yeah. It's the great trick. Um, I still think uh, the best I've ever seen it done was in Reservoir Dogs with the ear. Yeah, where the I came out of that film the first time I watched it, and I was absolutely convinced I'd watch someone have their ear yeah. cut off, and then watched it the second time and realised no, I hadn't. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. happens off screen, <laughs> um, and and it's a director playing a trick of making a, a, a scene so intense that that you your imagination takes over and you absolutely convince you've seen something terrible yeah. and you have not seen something terrible. Yeah. You've seen the surroundings of something terrible. Yeah. Um and that scene in you know which um you know is someone being killed with an axe is brilliantly filmed because you you have its its point of view almost of well it's coming down on somebody's head, at the top of the head. So it's almost like you know, you, the viewer, are being chopped. Yeah, you know, by yeah. the axe is coming towards you. So yeah, and you hear the axe, you do not see it, and then you see the spatter of blood. And apparently, that was a, that was a mistake. The spatter of blood it was supposed to go all over Christian Bale, right? Um, and it, for some reason, something went wrong, and it only hit half his face. And Mary Harron looked at it in the edit and went. That that sums up the Jekyll and Hyde. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic, yeah. happy accident. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that Jekyll and Hyde thing is that it's that hiding in plain sight, isn't it? Yeah. 
because a lot of the film is about conformity and he, he makes it explicit a, a, a couple of times. And he says, uh, he's talking about um, Huey, Lewis's, uh, Huey, Huey Lewis in the news, hip to be square, which is yeah. uh, actually uh, the, the kind of soundtrack to one of the killings. And he says, you know, that song, it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends. Um, and this, this, so it's this absolute kind of... He is he is normal. He is part of his society, and his his fiance uh, Reese Witherspoon. Who, to be mm. fair, it's not a very extended role. She doesn't have much to do. It's, I guess it's relatively early in her career as well. Um, but her her she says to him at one point, you know, Patrick, you hate that job. And also, we're told by the way that Patrick's father owns kind of most mm. of this company, so it's kind of nepotism. He's a nepo baby, yeah. really. He yeah. hasn't got yeah. anywhere because we see him. He does no work. He does absolutely no, no, no work. There, there is no job. But I mean, um, Reese Witherspoon says to him, "You know, why you hate this job? Why don't you quit?" And he says very clearly, "Because I want to fit in." <laughs> so this this underlying kind of conformity, this kind of you've got to be able to get a, a reservation at, at a restaurant. I mean, there's there, there's one that kind of recurs called Dorcia, mm. and this is the one yeah, they're all yeah, trying yeah, to get a reservation yeah. at, and they can't, apart yeah. from Jared Leto's character, which enrages Patrick yeah. so much. I mean, to the point where um, this this Jared Leto character, Paul Allen, is that is I think the first to be killed. Yes, and as as Patrick is chopping up chopping him up, he says. Try getting a reservation at Dorcia now, you stupid bastard. <laughs> <laughs> so it's this it's this constant one upmanship. And there's a really funny bit with like these business cards that everybody's always yeah, presenting yeah, to each the other. The thickness of the business card. Yeah. The you know, quotes unquote business card because we all know yeah. what's really coming out of these cases. Um and <laughs> I, I think that's done really cleverly because I think a less clever director would have these business cards look identical. Yeah. And and yeah. where we couldn't tell the difference. Actually, we can tell the difference, but we don't know which one is better. So, you know, one font is slightly different or the colour of the card is ever so slightly different. So it's not like they're identical, but these cards are just inducing Patrick to an ever-increasing fury because they're always better than his cards, Absolutely. even though he's just had his cards done. So it's this, these tiny little details of, of one-upmanship and kind of machismo and... That all kind, of, and I know we'll talk later on about mm. kind of machismo and misogyny and mm. and how far the, those those labels fit on a film like this. But it's 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 that very much. Where am I in the pecking order of these identical people? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's sort of. Yeah, it's it's this. It's somebody. I guess it's somebody who's been forced towards a complete psychotic breakdown uh, because they are so pulled between. I want to conform. I want to fit in and I want to stand out. Yeah. And and these two things are not in the end mutually, you know, mutually yeah. they, they don't work. Yeah. You got to you got to be one or the other. You got to be an individual or 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 someone who is not that this extraordinary see one of the things that's really interesting about American psycho and and I think I think this does reflect the novel quite well is that so many people both massively popular the novel was a phenomenon uh, so many people read it and then kind of came out of it saying but i didn't i didn't quite get it or or kind of like having debates with their friends about you know what what really does happen and what really doesn't mm. happen and, and and whatever and yet all the way through Patrick Bateman is telling you exactly what's going yeah. on, like the quote you said, you know, because I want to fit in, you yeah. know, it isn't pronounced like yeah. muttered under his breath, yeah. you know, it's like, here viewer, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is what this is about. And um, I I'm trying to find the this fantastic quote. Um, it's near the beginning and it's one of the, the legendary yeah, kind of iconic scenes, mm. which happens right near the beginning of the film, which is Patrick Bateman's morning routine. Yeah. Um, which is this, it features nine different types of lotion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're apparently 1,000 abdominal crunches. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, as Lindsay was mentioning, the, this flat that is so 80s uh, with its clean lines and its loft type ambience and whatever, uh, and its overbearing whiteness that it's almost surreal. And Christian Bale's body so perfect um, and he had to work really, really hard on that because he was just skinny, apparently, when he was cast. 
um, and you know the, that it's almost surreal, and his hair so perfect yeah. that it's almost surreal. And um, uh, it, uh, there's a voiceover, um, Patrick Bateman talking to the audience about who he is. And um, I'm going to edit this quote down a little bit, but um, basically he says, there is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. I simply am not there. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of like... Shout at the viewer, why don't you? And yet still we come out at the end of that film going, well, what happened there? Yeah, and it's yeah. kind of like, well, I kind of told you at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> He's not a real person. Or is he? You know, the, 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 the whole thing about identity crisis being so powerful that you don't actually know yeah. who you are, but also the idea that he is an amalgamation of everything that Brett Easton Ellis Felt thought yeah. about a particular kind of male yeah. at a particular time in American history. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you know there is this running joke, and it, it it's quite key to the ending actually. That they'll sit in a restaurant and they'll say, "Oh, is that Exity Y over there?" And he's like, "No, of course not. It's not Exity Y. That's Y T X. You know, it's all mm, these yeah. all these. Uh, I can't I can't remember the names, but." People are constantly being mistaken for yes. men. Men, men are constantly being mistaken for other men, uh, to the point where at the end, uh, you know, Patrick is often mistaken for somebody else. Yep. It leads to somebody's downfall that he mistakes him for 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 somebody else. Yeah. Um. There's just this constant kind of back and forth. It's not just Patrick who's not a person. Nobody. Nobody none of is. these. None of these men are people. They're all amorphous blobs as part of this kind of they live type society. Yeah. This this consumerist yeah, they society. They live is a good compar- comparison. I, I don't know if listeners will will know John Carpenter's They Live and it's kind of a invasion of the body statues type conceit but that's a really good comparison um, and you, you mentioned the shower scene and this is one bit I mean it's a long time since I read the novel and I do remember liking it I didn't read it again for mm. this I, I no, did watch the novel again for this should have but yeah oh well. but I, one thing I really do remember about that shower scene and I think the film kind of loses something by not doing it this way is in the book it's a list of brand names yeah. it's this potion yeah. and that cream and this facial something and that body something. And it's it's all these, I think, as far as I remember, real brand names, they're not made up ones. No. And I, just the kind of, what Patrick is telling you there is not just about his routine, but about the expense of his routine. Yeah. And that's something that I, I feel is, is, is slightly missing in the film. I, I, I suspect, because if my memory is correct in that scene, there's a couple of things where the brand is mentioned and then most of them... It, it isn't. It's just mm. what it is. Like, yeah. you know, exfoliating skin gel. Yeah, kind of yeah. Um, and I, I suspect this might have been literally because some people gave permission to yes. have their brand mentioned and a lot didn't. Yeah. Because, you know, the thing to keep remembering is that um, American Psycho was a massively controversial book. Uh, lots of people protested against it. Mm. Um, when people found out there was a film being made of it, there were protests. Yeah. And particularly, um, not from... Christian groups or anti-violence groups, but mainly from feminist groups. Mm. Um, and and in one case in Toronto, um, you know, and this is a, a sort of thing about the power of fake news and uh, way before we learned what exactly fake news was, mm. um, there was, um, when they, they filmed part of the film in Toronto and there was uh, a big turnout um, protest group in Toronto uh, trying to get the film shut down. Uh, you know, not allow them to film there. And one of their arguments was um, that um, it was a known fact that a serial killer who had operated in Toronto had owned a copy of American Psycho. And, you know, and therefore American Psycho had inspired this serial killer. Point of fact, he'd started his killing spree spree four years before American Psycho was published. Yeah. And it's more like, and apparently the killer was pretty much illiterate uh, and he lived with his sister and it was a bit more likely that his sister had owned and read American Psycho than it was him. Right. Um, But that all becomes scrambled around until it's an absolute known fact that this guy had been told to kill by Brett Easton Ellis. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of like that was the kind of furore around American Psycho, um, both when the 
novel was published, in its aftermath, and when the film was being made. Lots of people did not want this film made. So therefore, they were going to brands and saying, we want to mention you. Yeah. And there were brands going, no, we don't want yeah. any association with this film. I wonder how Brett E. Snell's got away with that then. I guess maybe I the, it's different <laughs> different for books. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. Um, yeah, that's a good question. But you can just imagine these days, films would be falling over themselves to, uh, you know, if, if they thought product the film place. was going to be big, there'd be product placement all over the place. And I, I think, you know, obviously, American Psycho, the film is better mm. for for not for not being that. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, brands like to be seen that they're in on the joke and that they're edgy these days. Yeah, but in those days, yeah. I think it was probably, it was probably a bit different. Absolutely. Um, do... Uh, I think the other thing that Patrick all the way along the line is telling you who he is is his absolute obsession with other serial killers. I mean, at one point he mentions like the name of Ted Bundy's dog and at some point he said, um, and do you know what Ed Gein used to say to his his friends? And I think it is uh, Justin Theroux says, Ed Gein, maitre d' at the canal bar. (laughs) He says, no, Ed Gein, serial killer, Wisconsin in the 50s. Um, yeah. Anyway, so he then yeah. has the quote about you know sometimes I like to talk a woman, to a woman or take her out, but often I'm just thinking how her how her head would look on a stick. Yeah, um, and it's it's this. But that also, um, I mean, that was a deliberate misquote. That a, a serial killer did say that, right? But it wasn't Ed Gein. That even that was a gag. Right. Okay, I didn't get that one. He's, he, that no, went just over at, my head. Just at the, <laughs> but that's but that's but the, yeah, but that. There's no reason why I, I only read that. Like my, I've seen this film half a dozen times. Yeah, yeah. It's only in doing the research this week that I learned that that was a thing yeah. as well. Um, but it it was more about yeah, we'll have him mis mis misattribute the quote. Yeah, because this is a man who is arrogant and narcissistic and thinks he's right and he's always mansplaining and he's actually an idiot. Yeah, he is an idiot. You know, when he's talking about uh, Huey Lewis in the news, and you know, famously from from the book and from the film, he has this terrible middle of the road taste in music um, but he says about Huey Lewis in the news he said I didn't like their earlier uh, stuff it was a bit too new wave for me <laughs> <laughs> or Genesis I've been a fan of them since their 1980 album before that they were a bit artsy yeah <laughs> so anything yeah. bland and commercial anything that's had the heart ripped out of it anything that never had any heart to start with uh, he sees these as these profound kind of statements on the human condition. Absolutely. I, I can't put too strongly. I mean, I think this is a perfect compare and contrast, really, about what Mary, how Mary Harron <clears throat> chooses to interpret American Psycho. Because in the book, I will never forget sitting reading that book and then suddenly the first time a chapter came in, which was a record review. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he just slaughtered somebody in some kind of... You know, incredibly brutal way, and and you're you're hearing these repellent thoughts. And the next minute is a review of Whitney Houston, and um, I was a massive mess. I hadn't become a music journalist yet, but I was obsessed with music music journalism, and I just remember my mouth dropping open because Brett Easton Les had done this incredible thing where he'd used the pomposity of a particular kind (laughs) of male music journalistic language but on records that music journalists would despise. <laughs> and in doing so, had made all music journalists look fucking stupid, <laughs> frankly. And and it was just so clever. And I was literally just sitting there going, oh, I almost, I think I was kind of giving it a round of applause. I just, just thought it was the most amazing thing and the most brilliant way to really flag up the banality of evil. Yeah. You know. Uh, yeah. Um, That's uh, a phrase that's used a lot. And, um, the way Mary Harron really chooses to do this is is in the first and best kill, which uh, I think that's I think it's the best kill, which is the hip to be square yeah. and, and whatever, and and Christian Bale prefacing it with a dance, and <laughs> and the moonwalk, which apparently he improvised, he improvised Christian Bale, yeah, and. And there was a, you know, after the scene was shot, there was a cut, you know, and and um, Mary Harron said, I, I, I sort of thought, oh, that, um, I don't think that's right and whatever. And again, it was another one where they watched the Daily Rushes and went, oh, my God, it's brilliant. Yeah, we've got to keep it. <laughs> don't know why it's brilliant, but it is. And um, his joy, it, it, it's... It's one of the most. It's one of my favourite scenes of cinema, I, I, and it, because it's so wrong. 
Mm. He's going to smash someone's head in with an axe. And the joy of his performance and the complete irrationality of it, of, of you know, the Jared Leto character, of course, not sitting uh, Basically, it's become a novel at this point. So it's obvious what he's going to do. You know, he's yeah. not being quiet about it, but Jared Leto's reacting as if just nothing's happening yeah. because he's so full of his own brain and his own stuff and his own whatever and he doesn't notice anything that other human beings do. Yeah, absolutely. Let me tell you something that Jared Leto says to him which is just, it's the icing on the cake. So Jared Leto is more successful. Mm. He's got, you know, he's got this job, this project. He can get reservations at Dorsia. Mm. He's just yeah. like the guy about town. Again, he is no different from anybody else no. but in Patrick's mind, he's just like, he's become this alpha male very undeservedly. Um, and so, you know, they have this night out where Jared Leto is under the impression that Patrick Bateman is somebody called Harborman, I think it mm. is. Um, and it's just one-upmanship all the way along the line. And what tips Patrick over the edge is um, Jared Leto, Paul Allen, says to him, where do you tan, Harborman? And he says, well, I, I tan at a salon. And he says, hmm. I've got a tanning bed at home. You should look into that. <laughs> and it's just the fury of there is nothing that you, where you cannot be one-upped by somebody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's the that's the one that, that tips them over. What's your take on, so, you know, obviously um, the film was controversial. Uh, it was always going to be controversial. Making a film of that book was always going to be controversial. Um, and there are many people who didn't like it, although the critics on the whole you know, they, they saw it immediately mm. for what it was, which was a, a great film. What's your take on the whole thing that many feminists of the time, not by any means all, mm. but many feminists, including Gloria Steinem, um, felt that American Psycho was a misogynist book and couldn't understand how oh, two women had collaborated on mm. a misogynist film? Well, again, it's that age-old question. Is it a misogynist book or is it a book about misogyny? And uh, as I say, I haven't read the novel recently enough, mm. although all this talk about it is making me think I need to, yeah, need to yeah, dig it too. out again and have me a read too. it. Me too, me I, too. I, I think this is a film about misogyny. I don't think this is a, a misogynist film, so I can't speak for the novel, but my mm. view of the film is it's a film about misogyny and it's part of that conformity. So a lot of the, the conversations that these guys are having when they're around the table mm. in, not Dorsia, but, but wherever else they've been able to get a table, is, you know, there's a line that says, Oh, somebody, somebody, this this woman, she has a good personality. And there's a laugh because the the, the next line is, there are no girls with good personalities. Mm, mm. And so women women for these men are not, they're not people. They're, no. they're you know, trophy fiancés or they're sex workers. Certainly for Patrick, they're, they're sex secretaries. workers. Or they're secretaries. Um, and so it's kind of like we've got every every aspect of how men see women mm. in, this, in this film. But... And and some of those women, not not the Reese Witherspoon character especially, but one of the sex workers and certainly mm. uh, Jean, the secretary who's played by uh, Chloe Savigny, are given kind of their props to be kind of people, yeah. we, we, not in terms of their backstories, but in terms of their reactions, in terms yeah. of who they are. Yeah. And in fact, uh, Jean, the secretary, is perhaps the only person in the film who inspires a bit of sympathy Absolutely. from Patrick he's going to kill her and he doesn't kill oh, her I 100% agree she's the only human being in the entire film mm. and the only person who even goes gets two dimensions yes yeah um, and it's deliberate it's deliberate yeah. they're, they're supposed to be one they're, they're symbols everybody in this film is a symbol yeah and and I guess I always struggled with the feminist argument that it was a misogynist book I, you know the, I think what you've just said is absolutely correct, but I'd, I'd go even more basic about it. If it's a misogynist book, how come so many men get killed? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, Patrick is an indiscriminate yeah. killer. Um, and and it, his, his, his friends are, I guess, you know, not PC, as a, mm. not woke, certainly as we, as we call it these days. And they have this little jokey conversation that Patrick... At, actually kind of gainsays but you know he doesn't mean a word of it mm, so I think yeah. maybe somebody says something racist or somebody says something sexist and Patrick runs off with a kind of well of course in this day and age you really what we have to do is we have to end a party and we have to do this and we have to you know we have to fight for civil rights at the same time as fighting for equal rights for women and it's like he's reading it off a cue card and it's like 
I'm not even sure he knows those words are what he's saying. Yeah. It's just, and so there's a little joke about, oh, Patrick's dating somebody from the ACLU or whatever. But <laughs> it's, it's, these attitudes are prevalent. Everybody yeah. around that table hates women. And um, I, I had to look something up because it, it did, it, it did kind of remind me of something that I couldn't quite remember what it was. And it's in uh, Joan Smith's book, uh, Misogynist, which yeah. I think is a great kind yeah. of book on femi- feminist essays. And she quotes or at least references a Blake Morrison poem called The Ballad of the Yorkshire Ripper. Right. And and this, this poem is all about how the Yorkshire Ripper just thought what other men thought. Right, um, okay. Okay. That's that's not Blake Morrison's viewpoint. Yeah. It's it's coming yeah. from a character viewpoint that he's writing about, um, and one of the lines is uh, like you know I think of this and I think of that and how my mates hate women, and that's what this is about. This yeah. this is what this film is about is these men hate women. Um, this is a culture and society that hates women. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah. The, the women women have no place, um, except as 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 kind of help meets trophies. Sex, sex partners to be used and, and abused and exploited to be bought and sold, perhaps like his fiancée is as well. Um, and this is a film to me that shines a light on that. It's not. It's not. I it doesn't agree. promote I... that argument. It says, "Look how awful this argument is." Mary Harron had to do an awful lot of work to be the director of American Psycho. There was an awful lot of toing and froing and coming and going and giving it to male directors and different stars. And one of the the things that she did uh, early on in that process was she met with Brett Easton Ellis and they talked about the whole, um, you know, is this a misogynist book, you know? And she said, she says on on, um, a very good making of um, documentary on the Blu-ray that Brett Easton Ellis had been really really hurt by the anti-feminist response because and you know she quotes him as saying i thought i'd written a feminist book (laughs) yeah um and and obviously you know the problem is with doing something which is ambiguous at its heart and he always wanted it to be he wanted the the reader to do the work and work Mm -hmm. it out for themselves is People will do that and then they will make up their mind what it's about. And if it's not what your intention is, then they're going to go and run with it. And, you know, a lot of women read that book, um, picked out the scenes where, you know, there were, you know, some brutal things said about women and some brutal things done to women and and just went, that's what this book is. And, um, but there were, you know, as you say, it's a depiction of a class of men who hate women. Yeah. And... It, it, it's made clear that that he's part of that class. I because I want to fit in. Yeah. Because I want to have those same opinions as everybody else. Absolutely. Uh, because I want to have those same feelings as everybody else. So yeah, I I um, yeah, I I don't I don't. I think it's a fatuous argument to say it's a misogynist film. To yeah. me, it's it's shining a light on how awful misogyny and how acceptable misogyny is in mm. not just at that time in that place but right here and right now it's uh, you know mm. it's it's, it's well, it, well, it, well it is you know you can't help having a wry smile at the fact that um mary harron came came on very very early uh, saying to the guy that had bought the book the book rights i know how to get this film made i know exactly i have a vision for it i have a female co-writer we know what we want to do uh, we, we, you know we've even gone and met an actor that we think could be perfect for it and, you know, and then spent the next however many years of her life um, being thrown off it in, in, you know, and having David Cronenberg attached and mm. this one attached mm. and that one attached. And you can't help but laugh at the irony. Yeah. It, it's kind of like, you know, you'll go away, little girl, until finally, you know, they go through all these stars and all these directors who have not got a clue how to do yeah. this and go back to the original person who did have a clue and went, okay, then. Yeah, give it a go. So uh, I think you were saying that um, Christian Bale was not the first choice to no, play this? No, no. Um, there was quite a, a list of, of other people. Um, uh, I think uh, there was Edward Norton. There mm. was... Um, could, could see that. Could yeah, see it. Yeah. Could see it. Uh, Nicholas Cage. Too much. <laughs> Too much. <laughs> right. Patrick's got to fit in. Patrick's right. got to conform. I, I must admit, 
I love the idea. Um, I, yeah, I should say it at this point, <laughs> listeners, I have a bit of a, a Nick Cage thing that I'm going through at the moment. He's kind of, you know, I, a little bit of a cult legend to me. And I'm kind of doing a bit of going back through and watching every bloody Nick, Nick Cage film that I can and enjoying the hell out of it. And part of me is hugely entertained by the idea of Nicolas Cage as Patrick Bateman. But there's, but Christian Bale does something perfect. He chews the scenery, but not so much that you're watching a slapstick comedy. He chews the scenery as Patrick Bateman. He yeah, doesn't doesn't do chew the scenery as, Christian, as Bale. Christian Bale. Yeah, that's a really good way mm. of putting it. But also, it's not slapstick comedy. Mm, mm. And Nick Cage, when he goes over the top, he does make a thing into slapstick mm. comedy, which I love. But it wouldn't be right yeah, for Patrick yeah. Bateman and it wouldn't be right for American Psycho. But the big person that was attached, at one point it was going to be directed by David Cronenberg and starring Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> and, um, and you know, he, he wanted to do it. You know, it was a big novel, it was a big part, you know, and, and whatever. And so the stories go. Um, his agents and also other people around him advising him were saying... So, you've just come off Titanic. <laughs> You're the biggest young male star on the planet, and that's mainly down to the love of young women. Mm. How do you think being Patrick yeah. Bateman is going to go down with them? Yeah. Um, and finally, you know, after various disagreements about the screenplay, um, you know, it, that didn't happen. At one point, Brett Easton Ellis was writing the scre- him, screenplay himself. And it's quoted saying, I got so bored, I started to make it ridiculous because it had gone on forever and ever and ever. And he says, I just started to hate it. Mm. Um, so, you know, David Cronenberg was just looking at his script and going, that's even worse than the last draft, you know, sort of thing. <laughs> um, and, and oddly, and, um, somebody was quoted as saying, oh, what David Cronenberg wanted to do is take the violence out of it, which was kind of like, that was the most surreal quote. Yeah. I mean, it's, but that's David Cronenberg's career is yeah. like body horror. Why did he have American Psycho and think, mm, no, this is the one film that's not going to be... Vi- what? Yeah. Um, we'll it, make it all implicit. Yeah, no. I no, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting with Leonardo DiCaprio, isn't it? Because at that point, it's kind of like, yeah, that would have been an odd choice. But then you see Wolf of Wall Street yeah, and, and you, you realise... That's Patrick Bateman. That's exactly Patrick Bateman 20 years later, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And at the time, it, it would have been a bizarre choice. and You know, it, it would have been a bizarre choice and, mm. and, and there's just no one else should have... An, done this thing like Christian Bale no one else would have been as good he no. is Patrick Bateman however you look at Leonardo DiCaprio as he got better and better yes. and you think yeah oh, yeah no he could have smashed that out of the park yeah yeah absolutely absolutely I, I think um one thing I really love about this film we, we've said it a, a lot Patrick all the time is telling and the film all the time is telling you who Patrick is but in these really sly little ways so at one point he's doing a crossword and all the answers are fill, are, that are being filled in, I don't know if you noticed this, meat and bones. Yeah. That's all it says, <laughs> is meat and bones. And then him and his, him and his mates are out with, uh, you know, some, some women around this, around this table. And the woman's like, oh, yeah, I always date guys who work in mergers and acquisitions. And Patrick says, murders and executions. <laughs> yeah. It's just so clever. And of course, she doesn't notice. She doesn't notice. She's so used to hearing, everybody else around yeah. the table is so used to hearing mergers and acquisitions that when he says very specifically murders and executions, nobody blinks an eye because they hear what they want to hear. And that's another exactly, thing that this film yeah. is about. Yeah. People hear what they want to hear from Patrick or from whoever. They yes. hear what they want to hear. Yeah. Nobody, and nobody listens to what anybody says. There's a scene in a yes. restaurant, isn't, isn't there, where he... He's, you know, he's he's talking to a, a woman and, and he, he says, she says something or other and he, he sort of says, a bit mumbling under his breath, but clearly enough, you know, basically I have an an, an unresistible impulse to murder everybody I meet. And she and she sort of like is looking away at a mirror or something mm. and go, what? Sorry, yeah. what did you say? Um, and that, it it's, yeah, it's a running gag. No one in this film is listening to each other. Yeah. Nobody, yeah. you know. You, and uh, what do you think? Right. Because uh, when I talk, start talking about the end, and I'm not saying that we're coming mm. to the end of our pocket. Mm. I just, you know, the ending's fascinating and probably the yeah. thing people talk about most. And um, so when I talk about the end, though, I'm not just talking about the very last couple of scenes. I'm talking about the whole kind of third act. Yeah. What's, what's your take? Well, I, I think it's... I think it's really, it, it it ramps up, doesn't it? So that the violence gets bigger and and 
and more and you know more and more people get killed he's on this this kind of rampage this killing spree and at one point he says this is quite near the end he's talking to somebody who's a lawyer and he says look uh, you know I've got to come clean I've killed 20 people or maybe 40 and it, it's it's like yeah. or maybe none or maybe a hundred. It's it's he doesn't say that, but that's that's what we are meant to fill in, yeah. I think. So yeah, I love the third act. There is that thing about it being out of out of control. And I is the third act triggered when he doesn't kill Chloe Sevigny? Or is it triggered by the fact that an ATM told him to shoot a cat? <laughs> <laughs> told him to feed the cat into the ATM. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um I, I think I, yeah, we, we see you're right. It starts off as a very kind of recognisable, stable world where Patrick is the unstable thing. But as it goes on, the world gets less and less stable. And and, yeah. and, and, and Patrick is this kind of careening atom in this jar. What's what's going to happen? What's yeah, going to happen? and, and, it, and it, it's, it's meant again, you know, there's almost like a parody of, of an action film at, at that point or a, or a thriller because, you know, there is a tendency of some less well-written thrillers to to in the third act they go you know what what has been up until this point suspense and mystery and you know and seems relatively logical and authentic suddenly in the third act becomes an explosion of violence so extreme mm, that mm. you know it, it, it it's like you know somebody's like suddenly got you know a, a rocket launcher or something and you know and, and you're kind of going huh and it does exactly that doesn't yeah. it that's what the film does you know one minute this is a guy that's never used a gun for any of his killings and the next minute he's got some gun which manages to blow up a police car <laughs> <laughs> and that's when you first start to question yeah how much of this is it's actually happening how much of, course of this it's is not real. happening you know and it's like and of course you know he he's not going to be able to somehow get away with Mm. <laughs> murdering <laughs> blowing up a police car um just by running away but that's the thing he runs away into office buildings where he's able to run away because he's so anonymous he's so like everybody else so these security guards are like working late again mr smith he's like yeah and then and then shoots him because yeah you know this is this is one of these never-ending guns which is another kind yeah, of yeah yeah unreality or yes or, or, absolutely ab, ab, ab reality but yeah, so his his anonymity, his one of the crowdness, is what is enabling him to kind of escape through these through these office buildings. Yes. But I just, I don't know. Maybe we should come on at one point. I've got two yeah, two more yeah. things I want to talk about. Yeah, so yeah, go for it. Patrick's excuses of why he can't hang around. I've got to return some videotapes, yeah, which he says quite a lot. Which is a totally but brilliant running gag. Once he says, "I gotta go. I'm having lunch with Cliff Huxtable." I mean, talk about American psychos. So, I guess, I mean, is there, do we want to discuss, is this real or or, or isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess, so I, I did a bit of reading around and looking around and whatever. It, it, I know what I felt, um, but... I think the the most interesting thing that I managed to find is I managed to find an interview online that Mary Harron did at the time of the film's release with uh, an interviewer called Charlie Rose. Uh, it was on American PBS. And, you know, he asked her about the ending. And, um, and what she said was um, that there was not in any way any intention to end it with it was all a dream. Mm. Um, and what she said was, I wanted it to be ambiguous the way that the book was. I should have made it more open-ended because she's already yeah. seeing that people are yeah. interpreting it yeah. as, oh, it was all a dream. Yeah. And that, and she's right. The novel, you, at the end, you're like, what? Yeah. You, yeah. you know, And that's what made it a massive talking point because everybody was coming out of that novel and talking to their friends and also read the novel and said, so what do you think happened at the end? Yeah. And that's... You know, that's one of the things that made it such a, a cultural talking point. Um, it was in Britain as well, uh, not just America. And um, it, she was trying to pull off the same thing. And one of the things that Brett Easton has kept saying is this novel is unfilmable. Mm. Now, he, you know, he took the check, <laughs> you know. <laughs> However, he even came on board and tried to write the script. But he still kept saying all the way through, 
I think this novel's unfilmable. And the reason is, is because it is completely ambiguous. And as soon as you put things on a film and show things to people, um, it's the, the filmmaker is starting to give people answers. Yeah. And people want more answers. And I don't think you can, you'll be able yeah. to film it. Um, and after it was made and came out, he was still kind of like, you know what? I've got no issue with the film. I, I think everybody did a really good job. I still think the film, the end is, is not ambiguous enough. Yeah. And because I always thought this novel was unfilmable. And he stuck to that. Yeah. And in, 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 in some ways, in some ways, I, I do get that because it's, is it, is it more interesting for us to leave thinking, well, did he or didn't he? And, mm. and I think and it, it is. is rather it is. than he did. And he's got away with it, or he didn't, and, and he's it was just, all a dream. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, which which would just in itself be the worst, yeah, ending ever. And I know, I know, of, you know, but but it is interesting. You know, two of the films we've talked about recently in this season um, have endings that could be interpreted as a straightforward. It was all a dream. Mm. Uh, the other one being Mulholland Drive, mm. um, and they're two of our favourite films of that era. Uh, two of the most multi-layered two of the most satirical, two of the most, um, you know, I don't know, intellectually charged, yet still really entertaining. Yeah. And same year or maybe just a year apart? I th- I th- yeah. Um, I think Holland Drive's a couple of years later. Right. Is it? And, um, and both of them have endings which can be interpreted as it was all a dream, but it, that neither of them are as simple as that. Yeah. I They're think just that's, not. I think, that's, I think that's it. I think it's profound. And I think... What I also like about the film is uh, we've said Patrick tells you all along who he is. Actually, there's one occasion where we don't see who he is. We're we're kind of invited to guess what he is, and that's the first scene with the two sex workers. Mm. So he picks up a kind of I guess a you know a lower rent um, type of uh, sex worker from from the street. Uh, a, a woman. She's she's very good in this. I didn't look up the actress's name actually, although she's familiar to me, and I can't remember her name. Um, and a kind of higher higher class, I guess, escort woman. And he has sex with both of them. Various degrees of, of, of things happen within that. Uh, at one point they said, can we go now? And they're just about to leave. And then there's a scene happens that we don't see. Mm. We don't see that scene. And then we see them leaving, kind of grabbing money from him, and, looking and abject, and humiliated, physically abused and we don't see what's happened in the middle so I think that's a rare occasion in the film where actually whether it's a feminist director or whether it's mm. a you know mm. whether that happens in the novel I don't know I can't remember either this what he does is too bad to be to seen show. To, to, to show and that to me links into the end because we've seen all this kind of comic violence and actually what we don't see is not comic yeah it's it's that's that's how, dead serious. It's how women get treated, and he, the second time he goes to pick up the uh, street sex worker, she doesn't want to go. She does go because she's you know he flashes some money at her or something. She does go, and and that's and that's her doom, and that scene is played relatively comedically, but you can't help but think of what you didn't see. What did Absolutely. he do to this woman? To to these women. But that it's was, so bad we can't show yeah, it here. Yeah, yeah, and and it, it makes its point really, really well. Yeah, um, and it feels like, in a strange way, the most shocking. Yes. Thing. What, uh, what, what you don't see yeah. is is, is the, worse. Well, those two women, you know, walking out, snatching the money mm. from him, and you can see, and and it's you know, and again, Mary Harris, you know, not not a unsubtle filmmaker. She doesn't put the camera up into their face and linger mm. to mm. to to show the wounds. Uh, you can just see that they they are different, yeah, in every way, shape, or form yeah. to them to them when they walked in, yeah, and, and and so that that to me is 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 another it's another feminist thing because it's it's kind of like yes, yeah, you know, there's lots of questions about did he or didn't he kill Jared Leto, mm. and people have seen Jared Leto, and people might know he's around and might have seen him. Nobody cares about this woman from the streets. Nobody yeah. is going to know or notice or care mm. if she lives or dies, if she's there or not, and that's a crime that men. Yeah, in real life, can get away with. That's a crime that men can do, and yeah. it won't be noticed, and it won't be queried, and it won't be detected. That's a crime that men can get away with, mm. and that to me is a is a real for a black comedy. Maybe we were just putting too much into this, but to me, no, for a, a black comedy, I think so. that's the that's the real thread that goes through this. Yeah, 
yeah, I think it's perfectly reasonable to have things that we don't see. Mm. Um, and once you see something, you can't unsee it. It's the same reason I don't wander around the dark recesses of the internet. Mm. Yeah. And you get the feeling that, that Patrick probably would because of, <laughs> yeah. often when we see him in his, uh, just bring back to the film, often when we see him in his apartment, what's going on in the background is either violent porn or mm. Texas Chainsaw, Chainsaw Massacre, Massacre which at is, some point. Couldn't, again, be more of a wink to the audience? Yeah. It, it, it's kind of like, you know, this film is telling you, so, you know, this, this character, whether he is a person or a cipher, um, is is a culmination of his cultural influences. Um, it is, you know, it, it, this is the things he fantasizes about. He fantasizes about Texas Chainsaw mm. Massacre. And of course, it's telling you that soon you're yeah. going to be watching him try and kill someone with a chainsaw. And he does it. And he does it. But he does it. But it's preposterous. Yes. It yeah. couldn't actually have happened. Yeah. And in the building, which is hugely populated, not a single person puts their head out the door yeah. and goes, hmm, I've just heard somebody being butchered by a chainsaw. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, this is, again, it's about New York at that time, the American upper middle classes. Yeah. It's about them as a group of people yuppies reagan era yuppies yeah it's not about patrick bateman or no anybody. it's about conformity isn't it yeah. we come we come back to that it's about conformity so mm. i think um, we should uh, look to 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 round this off right just now i feel we can't do anything else other than chainsaws so <laughs> how many chainsaws would you give it for weirdness ah. and for quality i'm going to give it Ten for quality and eight. Ten chainsaws for quality and eight chains for sure. Chainsaws for weird. I think I'm the same. Ten chainsaws for quality. It's. I was astounded by it. I think it's yeah. ast- and it's not just funny and it's not just violent. No. And I think from what we've discussed and what we've pulled out today, it's it 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 is saying something about men. It is saying something about society. I think it's a really important film, but nonetheless, it's an incredibly enjoyable film. Ten Chainsaws for Quality. I think Ten Chainsaws for Weirdness and Twelve Chainsaws for Christian Bale's performance, yeah. which is just Yeah, we haven't banged amazing. on about it enough, no, really. No, it's, and, it's up there. I, I think, you know, I, I said I was, I think I said I had a theory um, to you uh, earlier in the day and uh, when we were talking about it and I said, oh, I've got this theory about why Christian Bale, you know, is, uh, you know, what, why he was so great in this and why, you know, he's rarely been so great again. The three p- best performances by Christian Bale for me are American Psycho, The Machinist, and Empire of the Sun when he was just yeah. 13 years old. Yeah. And I think the difference in those films is he is the central character. He is it he is not part of an ensemble cast Mm. yes there are some good support actors you know in all of those films but this is a film about him and his character and i think he throws every single fiber of his being into those roles because he knows if it doesn't work there's no heath ledger or somebody else to pull him out of trouble yeah possibly possibly it's 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 one for the ages isn't it and absolutely you you must Go and see it. I would like to stick around, but I have to return some videos. <laughs> Till next time. Till next time. What's Wrong With This Picture is brought to you by Lindsay McCulloch and Gary Mulholland and is recorded by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. Music composed and performed by Russ Keffert.